0: And it was, without going in depth any further in Acts 6, it was something that was evident. People could understand. People could see, uh, obviously, if somebody was filled with the Holy Spirit. We'll, We'll get to that a little bit later. How is that possible? But our point is... That here was an important doctrine, the filling of the Holy Spirit, something required of the leadership. But it wasn't long in history, it wasn't long in time, and it's been lasting a long time that some people came in and started creating confusion about what this filling of the Holy Spirit is. Exactly what does it involve? What does it entail? And that is still today very, very predominant in churches that hold to the Bible, that bring up the Bible, or at least reference the Bible. That when you talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit, there's a lot of people who really don't understand. Understand what it is. And some of that confusion could be our innate problem because you and I, and I think it's most all of us, we have an innate inclination, infatuation, if you would, with things that are phenomenal, things that are mystical, things that are magical. Um, if we hear about it or see something, we read in the book of Acts that those who are filled with the Spirit, they could do miracles. Well, then there's a natural gravitation in our mind if we're not careful doctrinally that we'd say, hey, you know, the filling of the Holy Spirit must be associated with miracles and then that creates confusion. I was reading a book that some of you had recommended to me and I thoroughly enjoyed the book. Um, it's about a missionary who went from uh, St. Paul, Minnesota area and he ends up down in Columbia and he's a missionary, and this is in the 1960s or so. His name is Bruce Olson, and the book is... I'm not sure how he says it, because he's using the native uh, tongue to describe his name, Bruchko, or Bruco, something like that. And it's a really an interesting book. Several of you who had said, all said the same thing. He said, it's fascinating what he experienced. He goes down, he's working amongst cannibals. He's the first white man to make contact in the late 50s with these people. And he tells about his personal experiences. He talks about you know the, getting through... Life and death situations, whether it be from the natives, whether it be you know the gross things from the food, the diseases, and how God provided time and time and time again. And he, I mean, he's very graphic and it's it's very dynamic and it's a pioneer missionary. And it's like, wow, somebody that dedicated went through all those things. Like the gross story that he's talking about, how he passed out on the trail in the jungle one day and he was dreaming about butterflies and he was so dehydrated and he felt the butterflies in his mouth and he hadn't eaten for a period of time, and he had developed all kinds of parasites. Um, and so then when he woke up, this is really gross, when he woke up, he felt in his mouth, and he pulled out the foot-long tapeworm. Um, you know, so it's, it's those types of things that you go, whoa, somebody is putting up with all these things. And, he, you know, and so it, it's phenomenal. It's exciting. And, and uh, three or four of you that said, hey, you should read this book you know, it's interesting, all had a little comment with that. They said, you know, not sure if I agree with everything, but it's really, it's really interesting. As I read the book, it's like, oh, it was fascinating. It's fascinating to hear about somebody, pioneer missionary, hearing somebody doing the sacrifices, seeing natives get saved after five years of no con, no, you know, nobody listening. And all of a sudden one gets saved and then a kind of domino effect. And that's exciting. But yeah, there are a couple things that get concerned. Because we get so caught up with the phenomenal... I found myself so excited about the phenomenal experiences that I missed a couple of the doctrinal problems. The doctrinal problem, like he's talking about his fiance going in, and as they sit in the Mass, she finally understands Jesus as a Savior through the Mass. Um, That's not theologically lining up with scriptures. Okay? Uh, the mass doesn't do that, okay? It doesn't present the clear gospel at all. Yeah, talking about how he came to a conclusion that he's not going to stop the witch doctors from practicing their witch doctor stuff because they're praying to a deity, and whether we call him, you know, tree God or we call him Jesus, we're still praying to the same person. I totally disagree with that doctrine. Totally, okay? You know, those who are, who are praying to Allah are not praying to Jesus Christ, Okay, there's different deities. And Ephesians 5 makes it very clear that you and I are not supposed to mix different religious elements. And so I, I found myself doing that same thing that probably many others have done. Is you get excited with a phenomenal that is, if you're not careful, you miss the doctrinal peculiarities. And all of a sudden you can get caught up with that. So that's a danger. But First John, in fact, I want you to hold your finger in, the, in Romans and join me in 1 John chapter 4. And see what he does in 1 John chapter 4, talking about a problem that was happening with people coming and giving all different false ideas. He writes to the believers, John does, and as he's writing, he tells him something very interesting. He says, now watch what he does here in 1 John chapter 4 verse 1. Beloved, so that means who are these people? Okay, they're born-again Christians. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know you the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not God, and this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now, already is it in the world." He says, you are, children, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now he goes on and talks about other things. But let me just highlight a couple thoughts here out of this text. I, I see this from this text something very clearly. It is this fact. False teachers... And false teaching will happen, and it'll happen often. Because he makes the comment, they're, they're gone out into the world, and there are many of them. And so he's saying that even back in that time, this was a problem. The church was in its infancy, and already there are filled, you know, fillings of these false teachers. False teachers will infiltrate the church. They will infiltrate and impact the church as well. And let's make it a third statement that's even more, more damning here. These false teachings and false teachers, they will fool many Christians. Watch the wording that he uses. He says in the original language where he says, believe not the spirits. It literally says, stop believing all these spirits. Which means they are already believing some of these false teachers. They're already caught up in it. Maybe they're caught up because of the mystical, the magical, the phenomenal. And the talk of these miracles and these happenstances. And therefore, ooh, that is so exciting. I'm going to listen to this teacher, this preacher, and even be persuaded by his points of view that's dangerous. And it was a danger that happened in the early church. So when John is writing, John is going to write to them and he's going to say, hey, listen, here's what I command you to do, that you try the spirits, you test them, you examine them, you make sure they are the real thing. Uh, We got home on Monday and it was obvious that Deb needed to go out and rake the lawn, okay, because there was a lot of leaves down. She wasn't cooperative. Uh, So because she didn't do it, it meant that I had to do it. Can you believe that? So um, I got my trusty old, you know, my, uh, what do you call those things? Not the rake. No, that, that requires work. Leaf blower. leaf blower. I got the, you see, I don't even know what it's called. I got the trusty old leaf blower out, and I was going to you know, get it started. But there was a problem with it. Deb hadn't filled it up with gas. Okay, <laughs> so that meant I had to figure out which of the four or five different gas containers were the legitimate one. So I had to try the gas cans. To test out which one was the mixture, which one wasn't. Because if I put the wrong stuff in, she won't have the leaf blower to use in the future. And I want to make sure that it makes it easier for her in the future. Okay. So you have to test these things out, right? You, you test ingredients. You test your know, vehicles where you work. You test sometimes students where some of you are at the schools. You test, you know, is this milk still good or is it bad or you know this product? You, so you, he says, okay, when somebody comes in and they're teaching or you're listening on the radio or you're on the internet, try the spirits. Test them. Make sure that they are legitimate. The question that you and I have have to have is this. He says we're supposed to test because there's a lot of false teaching out there that even infiltrates the church and can pull Christians away. How do we know who's right and who's wrong? Well, if they say that they believe the Bible, folk, who says they believe the Bible? Most everybody, right? Okay, so how do we know? Well, in this passage, he implies A really, really important test. He says that if they say that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh, they're not of God. Well, we understand the setting at that point. The setting of that case is there are some false teachers that are saying that everything in the flesh is bad. Material matter is bad. These were called the Gnostics. If it has physical matter, it's evil. Therefore, Jesus had no physical matter or he would have been evil. Because everything physical is tainted. And so they went to the point that only the spiritual is good. The body is bad. So, You know, you had two options. If the body is bad, you beat it, beat it, beat it, and you practice masochistic type of religion. Or the body is so evil, you just feed the flesh because it's already condemned, so you just live any way you want. But your big concern is the spirit. And so they taught that, and he's saying, no, 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 Jesus did come in the flesh and so he's the flesh isn't innately the physical flesh isn't innately evil what part is when he says that you are carnal what's he talking about he's talking about the heart he's talking about the sin nature absolutely so he is writing he's in that context he is basically saying this thought when he says okay you know what do they believe about jesus that is true but let me expand it to fit with the old testament other teaching are they teaching what is consistently been taught before John has consistently already taught, we have seen Jesus. Not only have we seen him, do you remember what he and Luke and Matthew and Mark all say? We have not only seen Jesus, but we have touched him. He says we have handled him. And so the criteria is, are they teaching that which has been consistently, are they consistent with what's been revealed already? This fits the Old Testament. Remember in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, where he says, When you get a prophet coming, you know, one of the things you want to examine is if he's making predictions, those predictions better come true, okay, or they're not. But how do you know if they're just making a message? Does that message line up with what you already have been given? You know, the danger is if somebody says to you, Hey, I found something in Scripture nobody else has before, what should you automatically do? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a good way of putting it. Just say, see you. Because if nobody else has seen it, he's probably not not preaching truth. Okay? He's, you know, something that's... The... Now, if you say or I say, I haven't seen this before, that's pretty regular, isn't it? That as we study, we learn something new. But what we're talking about is somebody who's coming up with a new doctrine that all of a sudden nobody ever had before. Okay, now that's a problem. And so he lays it out. But watch what he does as he lays that out Who he brings into the picture of helping us to examine. Did you catch it when we read it here back in verse 4? You are of God. Who is, he says, greater is he that is. Who is that? Who is in you? Let's let's bring it back to the basic doctrine. Which part of the Holy Spirit? Which part of the Holy Spirit? (laughs) Okay, Uh, this this is jeopardy. Okay, I gave you the answer. Give me the question. Okay, which part of the Trinity? is in you. Okay, it's the, it's the physical, the spiritual presence of the Holy Spirit. So he brings the Holy Spirit that's saying the Holy Spirit is going to help you to overcome and to understand what's truth and what's not truth. Well, that makes perfect sense. When we start going and noticing other aspects of the Holy Spirit's ministry, it's amazing what the Spirit does for us. There are a lot of things the Holy Spirit does. We stopped last week talking about one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit indwells us. He lives within us. I've already referred to that this evening. That he is within you. 1 John 4.4. 4. He says elsewhere, he says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit dwells in you. Now, uh, If any man have not the Spirit, he's none of his. In other words, if you're born again, the Holy Spirit lives at your residence of your, of your body. In fact, he expands upon that. And we looked at this at length here a couple, three weeks ago. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you? Okay. He goes on, which you have of God and you are not your own. Know ye not that you, that you are the temple of God and the Spirit dwells within you? And so he makes it very clear. Now, there's another aspect that goes right along with that. Not only does he indwell you, he, he illuminates you. And that goes with what we were just saying a moment ago about trying and examining and understanding who's truth and who's not truth. He said, Jesus did, in John 16, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. How do we understand the Bible? How do we know that we are getting the gist of it? It's the work of the Holy Spirit within us. He who inspired the word illumines your mind so you can understand it. That's the beauty of what we hold as a group of believers, I don't have to interpret, and I shouldn't interpret the Bible for every single one of you. Now, should I explain passages at times and help put it together? But who can go to God and understand the Word of God? Every one of us. Now some of us grew up in a religion that said you should never read your Bible. I did. They told us we could not read our Bible. We can't understand the Bible. That the preacher has to give you the interpretation because you do not have the Spirit of God to know what the Bible says. Well that's just false. Because everyone who is born again has the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God teaches us, guides us into what he says, all truth. Let's, let's pick up another passage. I has not seen nor ear heard the things which God has prepared for them that love him. Okay, now that, this is a fact. You and I cannot understand all that God wants to reveal in and of ourselves. We just can't. It is beyond us. There are certain things we don't understand. Men, what is the major thing we don't often understand? Women, okay, that's just all yeah, set. Okay, women, what don't you understand at times? Men, I mean, how do they how do they function? Okay, because because that difference in gender, we, yet sometimes we don't connect, we conflict, we don't connect. Okay, he is saying here, wait a minute, God is so above us that in and of ourselves we can't understand, but God has revealed them Himself, those secret things about Him, unto us by how. He says very clearly, the spirit of God. He goes on, now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but you and I who are born again have received the spirit which is of God, that, that's the reason, that we might know the things that are freely given of us of God. How do we understand his sovereignty? How do we get our, hands, uh, our heads around that? We can't in and of ourselves. The best we can do is the spirit reveals that our God is able to do anything and everything he chooses to do. That's sovereignty. He can do anything and everything he chooses to do. Okay, can he make a rock so big he can't? No, that, that, con, that absolutely contradicts the definition of sovereignty. Okay, he can do anything and everything he chooses to do. He does not choose to force you to get saved. He allows you. He convicts he woos, but you make that choice. He doesn't force that. But he is still sovereign because he can do anything and everything he chooses to do. Can he sin? No, that's beyond his capability. He doesn't choose to do that. Does he lie? He doesn't, that's, that's beyond the choice of realm. So we look and we say, that's sovereignty. How do we get our heads around it? How do we come to that conclusion? The Spirit of God helps us. How do we get the idea that he has forgiven me? Uh, some of you were like me. When you got saved, you struggled. How could he forgive me? Really, I've been forgiven. And we battled with that assurance. How did we finally get our hands and our heads around that? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God bearing witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God or children of God and so that's his ministry of illumination there's another ministry that he has it's the intercessory ministry do you remember where he talks about this Romans chapter 8 where he said "Well, there it is Romans 8 that he helps us with our infirmities for we know not what we should pray have you ever been there You don't know what to pray, how to pray. Should I pray this? We'll come back to that, okay, when we hit Romans 8. The enabling work of the Holy Spirit. What I mean by that, and now I'm getting back to that idea where we started, the filling of the Holy Spirit that is often confused. In the Old Testament, people were filled. We talked about this at length. Their filling had a different dynamic to it, but it had the similar results. Similar results as God filled people to enable them to do a task he wanted them to do. God in the New Testament says, I want to fill not just a select few, I want to fill all of these people. To really get a handle on this, to understand a little bit more, let's do Romans chapter 8. Let's do a real quick, quick and Wayne don't go together, but let's do a quick overview of Romans 8. Romans 8, and watch how Romans 8 is going to explain the ministry of the Spirit. Now, in Romans, what you have is this. You have all about sin, the first few chapters. All about salvation, chapters 4 and 5. Then you have 4, 5, 6. Then you have the idea of, okay, what happens about sanctification, 6 and 7. And then what happens if we fall, if we fail? Chapter 8, security. In this chapter 8 of security, what he's going to talk about is he's going to talk about two aspects of the Holy Spirit. Mark these down. The, according to Romans 8, the Holy Spirit grants spiritual life to all believers. It is part of his ministry, involved in our salvation. God is involved, Christ is involved, but the Holy Spirit is also involved in our salvation. If you go and look at these verses with me, watch how he unfolds this. And how he, uh, he says, okay, here's how the Holy Spirit works and helps us out, and I've got to get to Romans 8 with the rest of you. So give me just a couple seconds. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he says, There is therefore now what? No condemnation to them who are what? In Christ Jesus. Okay, and he's just talked about in chapter 7 about how we struggle and how we battle and the things that I would, I don't do, and the things that I would do, I don't do. Well, there's this, y'all, who shall deliver me from this body of death? But look at the end of verse 1. He says, now I like the beginning of verse 1. There is therefore no, no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And I usually stop there. Okay, but continue on the rest of the thought. And he, say, he defines what this involves. He says, those who are in Christ Jesus, who, how do we know we're in Christ Jesus? We walk not after the flesh, but we are walking after the spirit. He's bringing the spirit in. The spirit is enabling us by giving us life. Well, oh, now watch what he does. Let's just, let's just put this down. Okay, the Holy Spirit in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, what does he do? He removes all condemnation. He's involved in helping us not to be condemned where we deserve to be condemned. Praise God for that ministry. The Holy Spirit, what else does he do? He frees us from the law of sin and death. Look in verse 2, where he says, The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Well, that law of sin and death was basically the rules that had to be kept. How, you know, the moral code. How many of us could keep the moral code that God had established? Not a one. There is how many righteous? None righteous. No not one. Okay, and he's very clear about that. For all have sin and come short of the? Okay, and the wages of sin is? Okay, but the gift of God. So he's talking here. He says he's freed us from that. He's freed us from that condemnation. He's enabled us to, uh, to be able to have life. He goes on, for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh. God sent his son in the sin, in likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4. Here he's he's going to basically say it this way. He makes us righteous. That is, not condemned. That is, judicially right before God. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And so he goes on in verses 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Basically what he's going to do in those next few verses, he's going to compare the saved person with the lost person. For sake of time, let me just give you this, because I want to get to the second section. The verse 5 talks about those who are saved, they seek God. Those who are not saved, they seek themselves. They seek whatever the flesh is. We read in verse 5 that they're following after the, the 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 flesh and mind the things that are the flesh. If we go to verse 6, he's saying that those who are, who are saved are going to be people who have, well, we'll put it, they'll experience life where there's life and peace. Those who are not saved, well, they're going to experience death, separation from God. Verse 7, 8, 9, nine 10, 11, they are the individuals who are going to say, okay, I am going to say no to the flesh. I am going to submit myself to Jesus Christ and be dead to sin, as opposed to those who are called enemies or at enmity with God. And so he makes these comparisons as he's talked about, okay, here's what the Spirit does. Here's how he works. Here's how it shows up in people's life. Then he's going to go in verses 13 following, he's going to talk more about the Spirit and what the Spirit does for us. The spirit not only gives us eternal life or spiritual life, but the spirit also enables us to live spiritually. Okay, gives us spiritual life. He enables us to live spiritually. That's where my frustration is in my Christian life. And I bet you that's where your frustration is. I know what I'm supposed to do. I want to do it, but I find in my my flesh, I don't do it. I'm not supposed to lose my temper at those crazy other drivers. Okay? And it's everybody else who's the crazy driver, not me. Okay? So I get frustrated with them, and I get angry, and I lose my joy. I don't want to do that, but I do that. I do want to spend more time in prayer. I intend when I get up to spend more time in Bible study and prayer. But as the day goes on, the things that I would, I don't do. I find the urgency of other things pressing in and stealing away my prayer time and I'm not strong enough to say no. I find that my patience is wonderful with you. It's not so wonderful with Deb. I know I'm the only one in the room that does this to their family. I can be loving and patient with everybody outside the house but those within the house, I can be less patient with. By the way, I think, I think that's most all of us in this room. Okay. And even though I don't want to do that, that happens at times, especially when she's wrong. Okay. <laughs> Which is... Must be all m- the time. All the time. <laughs> she said it must be all the time, according to me. Uh, okay. So how do I do what's right? Watch how this text unfolds and says, wait a minute, it really goes back to the Holy Spirit. It's our relationship, I, I shouldn't say that, that's the wrong term. It's our fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Our communion with the Holy Spirit. Our reliance upon the Holy Spirit that makes the difference. He says in verse 13, here's what happens. Here's what the Spirit is going to help me to do if I rely upon Him. Verse 13. Verse 13 he says, for if we live after the flesh, we're going to die. We're going we're to be, you know, be in a mess. But if you through the Spirit, what's, he, what's the first thing he said we have to do? Through the Spirit, what do we have to do? Mortify. Okay, and what's mortify mean? Put to death. We have to basically say, to our temper, drop dead. To our gossiping mouths, drop dead. To our, to our jealous spirit, drop dead. To our, to our anger, drop dead. We're tempted to get angry, we have to internally be able to say, drop dead, I'm not giving in to you. Easier said than done. And he says, wait, the problem for most of us is because we're doing it in our strength, our own strength. We're not doing it through the Spirit. We're not yielding to the Spirit. Because there are times where, we're, where instead, of, instead of saying drop dead to our anger, we justify our anger. I had a reason to be angry. Because that dumb clerk gave me the wrong part. And had intruded on my time and was inconvenienced. I was inconvenienced. I went home, found I had the wrong part, had to go back. It's their fault. I have a right to be angry and to, you know, carry on. I have a right to be angry because my kids didn't respond by cleaning up the room the way I had told them to. And they should obey me 100% of the time. There's only one person who ever obeyed his parents 100% of the time. Okay? Jesus Christ. The rest of us, we disobeyed, and we have kids that do like us. And it's one thing to, you know, deal with them, but it's another the way that so often we get frustrated. So how do I, how do I not lose my cool with my youngster? How do I not lose my cool with my beloved spouse? How do I deal with the co-workers. How do we deal with the garbage around us? Through the Spirit. Through the Spirit, we mortify the deeds of the flesh. Through the Spirit, we get wisdom. We know where we're going. He says here, he says, you, have, he says, you shall mortify the deeds of the flesh. Verse 14, as many as are led by the Spirit, they're the sons of God. He's highlighting that idea that our fellowship, our closeness, it is, it's supposed to be a natural outworking of our salvation that we're letting the Holy Spirit lead. While we were on vacation, we did one of these ropes courses. And so when we did the ropes courses, we, they had us up in the trees, about 15 feet, 15, 20 feet up in trees, and there's these old platforms. They get the littler, the taller you go, the higher up you go. And they're all the same size, but they do get littler, the higher up you go. And so we're there on this platform, and it's like, okay, I'm going to walk out on that single wire. I've got nothing to hang on to but balance myself, but I'm harnessed, so there's no problem. Okay, I will have total confidence by this one harness. And I'm going to walk out on this wire and do this thing, and it's going to be, as Eden said afterwards, she's three, she doesn't have a clue of any of the danger. She kept on saying, easy peasy. It's easy peasy, and it's like, yeah, right. Two people are hanging on to you, kid. Okay, nobody wants to hang on to me, because if I go, they go with me. Uh, So, yo, what do you do? What do you do? You watch the person in front, and you figure out how did they do it. And what did they do, and as they did it, it's okay, I'm modeling them, I'm mimicking them. I'm going to step where they stepped, I'm going to follow their path, and if they fell over, I'm not going to. But outside of that, I'm going to do what they did, and then take a cue from somebody in front. And then when the kids froze afterwards, it was, okay, do what I'm doing. Ah! No, uh, do, do, you know, follow along, be careful. And the idea is, give them a pattern, give them a pattern. He says, that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has us out into one of these rope courses of life and he says, just do what I'm telling you to do. I will guide you. I will lead you. I will give you the direction. Our problem is we usually have a better way. We know better. We, we've got it all. He says, okay, now added to that, here's what the spirit does. Watch, watch how wonderful the spirit is. He removes the fear. He removes the fear so that we are able to approach God and we're able to say unto the Father, Abba, Father. Do you remember that before you were saved, do you remember some of you who grew up like I did in a different religious environment that God was a scary person? That God was somebody that was waiting to pounce on you? In, in what I grew up, they said, you prayed to, pray to Mary. Why do you pray to Mary? Because she's kind. She's sweet. God is more cruel He's like the father who's angry. You should fear him. But Mary is the compassionate mother. And it was a whole system devised with this false idea that God is somebody we should be afraid of. Now, should we fear God with respect? Yes, Yes, that's a help. But are we to be afraid of God like he's the boogeyman in the woods and he's going to trounce us? No, no. And he says, in fact, it's the spirit of God that gives us the confidence that we can approach God and we can say, call him what? What does your passage say? Abba, Father. That's the Spirit of God working in your heart. He goes on, he says, what does the Spirit do? He says, look at verse 16. He says, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. How many of you, like I alluded to, how many of you, after you got saved, you still struggled with, am I really saved? How many, how many of us did that? Okay. What, what was it that helped convince you? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. But what did he put in your life that helped bring you to that convincing moment? His word? Okay. Anything in particular? Okay. Anything you raised your hand. Anything in particular, Mike? Just the word? I remember this part that was helpful for me. Is the the awareness that the word says that if I'm his child, he will convict me. And that convicting work of the Holy Spirit became very, very comforting. Do do, do you know what I mean? The chastening work of the Holy Spirit? Is there a comfort that my dad, my my earthly parent cared so much that if I got out of line, they would correct me? And the same thing, my spiritual father. He would correct me and keep me back from doing something more stupid. And so that, that work of that, bearing witness with the assurance, with the peace, with the convicting work, he gives us hopes. This whole section of, this, of chapter 8 is all about the trials and the troubles that are occurring in the world. That even the world groans because of the sin upon the world. And haven't we seen that in Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama? How the world is groaning, the tornadoes, the storms, the rains. He goes on, but jump down to verse 23. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption. That is this redemption of the body. The resurrection is what he has in particular uh, view. For we are saved by hope, but that hope that is seen is not hope. For what man sees, why does he have hope for? But we hope for that which we see not. Then, then do we, with patience, wait for it. We have a hope. We have hope here this past week. Our church had another funeral. I'm so sick and tired of funerals in this church. It has been way too many, okay? And yet at the same time, do we have hope when they occur? We have the hope that what? We're going to be together. It's not farewell, it's see you later. So how does that help us? Who gives us that confidence? Who gives us when the people are at home alone and the spouse is no longer there? Who's going to give them that hope? It's the spirit of God that will bring to remembrance that will help. Then it's the spirit of God that according to this text, he says, likewise, the spirit verse 26, he helps in our infirmities for we know not what we should pray. I don't know. Should we pray at this point, Lord, take them home or recover them? Lord, I don't know. Should we pray for you to chasten this person, to bring them to a point of repentance? I'm not sure how to pray at that moment. I'm not sure what you do to break this person or to deal with this person. I don't know. The Spirit knows best. And so we pray with the help of the Holy Spirit, which makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. He searches the hearts, knowing what is in the mind. And sometimes we just sit there and we do this. And you've done this, I'm sure. You say, God, I really don't know what to pray. I don't even know how to pray. I don't even know if my prayers are going up or not. But Lord, here's my cry. And the Spirit helps us at those moments. Do you, do you get the flow of the text? He is helping in so many ways in our life. Comfort, assurance, conviction. He's helping us to get over our sinfulness. And then he gives a whole section in this book that you all know. We're in verse 28. For we know that all things work together for good that are called to his purpose. He Later on he says, Who shall separate us from the love of God? For I am persuaded that neither height, nor death, or he says the life, or death, or angels, or principalities, and goes on, and talks about nothing can separate us from the love of God, the whole last part of this chapter is about security, it's about that ministry that God has in our lives, that's bearing us witness, that's saying nothing will separate us from God Almighty, nothing, 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 do you want to see how this is developed by Paul elsewhere? Paul elsewhere uses these terms. He says that we have the earnest of the Holy Spirit. These are the three texts that it's stated in the New Testament. And he says the earnest of the Holy Spirit. What is earnest? The word literally is Erebon. That we have the Erebon of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit. It is used in Greek literature to describe things that you're familiar with, it is used to describe an engagement. Something that was given as the dowry or the promise. The the man saying, I will take you. I will come and and receive you unto myself. It was used in Bible days the same we use it today in extra biblical literature. An earnest was a down payment that said, you will pay the thousand dollars for the the house. And you'll pay the remaining ten thousand dollars on this mansion later on. Okay, that's earnest, right? You've done that. Earnest money, yes. Okay, down payment. An earnest basically is a promise. It's a promise that's saying there is more to come. And he says, I have given you my earnest, my promise. I have given you down payment. That means I absolutely, there will be more to it. And my earnest that I have given you is my spirit that dwells within you. You're secure. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Is there any condemnation? Not to them that are in Christ Jesus. None at all. Then he uses another term in the New Testament. It's the sealing. S-E-A-L-I-N-G. The sealing of the Holy Spirit. These three texts. In that sealing, you understand what that is. It it's literally is to, to cover with wax. Now, any of you did the canning, you know what that's like, right? You put that wax over and it was to seal those jams, those gels, or whatever you had in those jars. And it was to keep it from anything getting inside. They also sealed items like a tomb. To make sure something couldn't get out and something couldn't get in. They also sealed letters to show that, okay, this is meant for that person. And it basically, they sealed items. They could seal property in the Bible days. They could take a wax and put a seal on it, which basically said that chariot that you sealed belongs to you. So that sealing idea basically shows ownership. It shows protection. This is God's, God's gift to you. God's gift to you, his spirit, is God saying, I've got more for you than what you're experiencing. I'm protecting you. I own you. I am not going to get rid of you. He cannot deny himself. Won't, well, I should rephrase that the way Paul said. He will not deny you because he cannot deny himself. I mean, that's all these blessings that the Holy Spirit does. There's all these ministries that we have. And then in Romans 12, he talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit a little bit different. And I'll come back to this, okay? This we'll use later on. But do you remember Galatians chapter 5? Let's wrap up with this, okay? Galatians chapter 5. Do you remember in this text, he's talking about the Holy Spirit and his work in your life. And he says, okay, you should have the fruits of the Spirit. Let's wind down, this take just a couple minutes. Galatians chapter 5. Where he's talking, he's saying, okay... If you who are being led by the Spirit, what's supposed to be in your life? Well, he says you'll have the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, the result of the Spirit... Being allowed to have control, being allowed to lead, to direct, being allowed to fill you where you say, Holy Spirit, I'm relying upon you. I need you. I, I, I know you have all this available, this whole available you know, uh, smorgasbord of spiritual activity that you have available to me. And Lord, I, I want it. I am going to take advantage of it. What's going to be some of the results? The fruit of the Spirit. What is it? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness. They're all people into relationships. It's all about how you're going to be evident. You're going to be shown to have the filling of the Spirit. A cantankerous, angry, blow-up type of person does not fit the fruit of the Spirit, does it? Yes, no? Does the crazy driver that cut you off and practice road rage, does that evidence the fruit of the Spirit? No. Does the blowing up and, and getting mad at somebody at the house and you start flinging magazines or newspapers or tin cans that have stuff in them, that doesn't fit the fruit of the Spirit. The blowing up and starting to cuss and curse, that doesn't fit the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, he says, is going to be evident in people's lives, and it's going to be the positive Christ-like virtues. Now, that, that's, that, I think every one of us says that, that's very clear. What's not as clear is how do we get that? The text tells us. The text shows us that the way to have these fruits of the Spirit is to have a, have a loving humility. Look at what he says right after that. He says, okay, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Verse 3, they that are Christ have already crucified the flesh, the affections, the lusts. That's true. Okay, we know that. Because if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Okay, if, now here's, here's verse 25, if. If we live in the Spirit, which, that's a fact. Do we get spiritual life through the Spirit? The answer is yes. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. That is yielding to the Spirit. This is a display of, this is in conjunction, this goes like this with the filling of the Spirit. It's yielding to the Holy Spirit. It's letting Him have control. It's letting Him fill your sails. It's letting Him to motivate you. It's letting Him to move you. It's relying upon Him. Lord, how should I respond to this person who's driving me nuts? They are my irregular person. My in-law, my out-law, whatever. Spirit of God, you've got to guide. He's saying, okay, if we are living in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Okay? a That's what we're talking about here. A willingness to surrender to the Holy Spirit. Let us, then he gives a second requirement. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another in a negative way, and envying one another. What is that? Being willing to love others. Oh, wait a minute. How did we jump into love? Because of all the works of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Of all the gifts of the Spirit, he says, if I can speak with all the tongues, if I can move mountains, and if I have all these abilities, but I have not love, I am... And what is the greatest of all the gifts? Love. Who produces that love within us? The Holy Spirit. I mean, seriously, how do we get along? Now, no offense to you, but how do you put up with me? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Amen? No. <laughs> You're being kind. You're being kind. Deb, amen? I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, how do we love people that have such differences, different backgrounds? It's the Spirit. It's the Spirit who calls us to say, okay, let me fill you and you will love because if you love, all men will then know you are my disciples. And so he takes us back to this whole idea. So bottom line is this. How does it apply? Let me just close this way. We should be grateful for the many-faceted ministry of the Holy Spirit. That he does this help, he does this mortifying, he does this this assurance thing. That just, It's amazing how he is, he is ministering in so many. Because some of us need the prayer help tonight more than, uh, than others. Some of us need the confidence, the assurance more than others. Some of us need the guidance a little bit more this evening than others. We have different needs. And he has such a smorgasbord of different, different enablements and different assistance. It's amazing to me. We should be responsive to his ministry. What I mean by that is, is basically this. Don't grieve him. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit whereby you are sealed. Don't, don't stifle his work in your heart. Don't push him back. Don't, don't push him down because of a bad response. There's a third thing we should be doing here. Be quick to humble yourself to the Spirit's control and leading. When you go home, you're tempted on the way home. To all of a sudden get angry over something, something happens. You're going to learn about something, get attacked, something about tomorrow that's going to create a frustration. And <sighs> vent or to just stifle. You know, just if you can't say anything good, don't say, okay, that's stifle. So you're going to stifle. Okay, how do I do that? Let the spirit control. Let the spirit who brings to your mind don't say anything. Let him control. Don't say anything. Just don't. Don't blow up at the kids over something that's not worth blowing up over. Don't say something, you know, in anger. Just let the Spirit lead in control. And focus on what we're going to call the greatest of the gifts. Focus on letting the Spirit love others through you. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about very simply... Being filled with the Spirit, this is this is what it involves yielding to the Spirit. Are you yielded tonight? Well, one of the aspects we can do with the Spirit is pray. So let's engage. Let's use the Spirit's help and let's pray wisely in these next few minutes. Thank you.